Welcome to Digisection, a podcast about building great digital health companies and the strategies behind them. My name's Oscar. I'm a physician, inventor, and entrepreneur, and I'll be your host. The following is a conversation with Carmen Reyes and Mark Rikassens. Carmen is the Vice President International at Limbics, and Mark serves as Clinical Director at Limbics and Research Director at BHVR. Virtual reality has a huge potential to play an important role in healthcare and especially mental health. Today you will learn more about an amazing partnership between two companies being the frontrunners and real trailblazers in this space. Limbics creates digital therapeutics for adolescent mental health and BHVR builds VR experiences to educate, motivate and activate healthy behavior. I hope you'll enjoy it. We have two really great guests today, Carmen and Mark, both joining from the beautiful city of Barcelona. Let's start with your personal stories. Carmen, could you tell us about your experience before stepping into digital health and what made you then particularly interested in the space? My interest came out of a personal experience. I've always worked in technology since I was very young. I've been for the past 18 years working in the startup world. I started in gaming and gambling, which is the best school for marketing acquisition and retention. And then I moved away. I moved into ad tech. I had a business with my late friend and business partner, Jama Ferrer, who we had an ad tech company. And unfortunately, he passed away of cancer. He had a brain tumor. And that was one of the turning points in my life. I think that's when I actually became an adult at a very late point. <laughs> <laughs> and when that happened, it made me question a lot of things about life. And I decided that I wanted to put my skill set to serve, you know, something with social impact. Mm-hmm. And that was my entrance to digital therapeutics. Limbics at the time was looking for someone to open up their European operations, like their international office outside of the US. And I was fortunate that Barcelona, which is a vibrant technological hub, was chosen. And so was I. I mean, we had co- people in common, you know, immediately kicked it off. And I will forever be grateful to them for the opportunity of being able to not only enter the digital therapeutics business, but also to become mental health advocate. Thank you for sharing the story, Carmen. Um, and how about you, Mark? I know you've been a researcher before, specializing mainly in the field of neurosciences. When was the moment when you realized you want to convert into the digital health world? Well, I've always been interested in health and mental health in particular. My background is in psychology and I've been doing research as a PhD student and then as a postdoc student in looking for brain correlates of various uh, mental health disorders like uh, schizophrenia, psychosis. Mm -hmm. And a few years ago, I had the great opportunity to meet Carmen and the great opportunity to move into industry while still being involved in research and being able to contribute to generating evidence uh, for various and different digital health solutions and virtual reality in particular, even my role at Limbix and nowadays at Behavior. So um, that's where I'm involved right now at basically contributing to the generation of evidence, helping these companies create, develop, plan, develop clinical trials from very early proof of concept studies to more full-blown randomized control trials that help them provide the evidence that their solutions are effective and they're feasible. So that's my focus of interest right now. 
That's really interesting. And we'll get back to the research and scientific side of VR in just a couple of minutes from now. Let's talk now about the current state of mental health and the key problems in this space. Carmen, could you tell us more about what happened and what changed during the pandemic? So I think the cost with comorbidities associated globally is over 150 billion US dollars. That number is strong and powerful enough. COVID has has had a silver lining to this problem and it has put mental health on the front. And I think this is uh, great because, you know, people are less scared to say, hey, I have a problem. It has generated a lot of anxiety. The unknown is always, you know, a source of anxiety. And the fact that we've been secluded in our homes for so long, uh, being deprived of our freedom has also had a huge impact. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it's also the United Nations. They've put some few programs on, you know, focusing mental health. So I'm hoping that this will also reduce stigma around the conversation. You know, if if we all talk about it from, you know, down up to top down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And by the way, our listeners would love to learn more about Limbix as a company and the partnership with BHAVR. Limbix was founded by Ben Lewis, John Sockle and um, Scott Satkin. They all have technical backgrounds that they understood the power of technology for good. You know, they started building beautiful VR environments for the treatment of mental health care, understanding the evidence was key from day one. So for the first two years, all they did was work on product and evidence mm-hmm. in partnership with top institutions. And now they're building a pipeline of digital therapeutics for adolescent mental health that, you know, the first clinical outcomes are being fantastic. So I can't wait for them to actually be <laughs> commercialized and here, you know, you know, they're already having a positive impact in our society. And uh, Behaviour was founded by Arangani, who was the CTO of Humana for many, many years. I think it's 15 years. He understands the pain points from a payer perspective. And I think that's why he's been able to envision such a robust platform. And now as a result, you know, the company's very successful and it's growing steadily, but strongly. And it has a great suite of products. And with the addition of the Limbix VR content, I think it's positioning itself as one of the leaders in behavioral healthcare and virtual reality. Okay. And there's more, I mean, you know, when we started, there was what, 20 people in the team, Mark? And I think we're close to 50 now. So, <laughs> so you know, it's also great to see that, you know, that there's interest, that there's more work to come. Mark's running loads of studies together with uh, our chief medical officer. The other thing I wanted to share is evidence is key. I I see a lot of people starting, you know, behavioral health initiatives, especially in in behavioral health. They have no evidence. You need to have multidisciplinary teams and you cannot disregard healthcare people at all. So involve doctors. You know, there's amazing people, you know, just like Mark. I think Mark, when him and I met, his life was academia. Well, there's great people in academia that can add fantastic value to this industry and we should be speaking to them. And Mark, I'd love to learn more how VR could help in mental and behavioral health problems. What are the most significant use cases so far? Virtual reality has a longer track record. It's been mostly used in the past one, two decades is in the use of on exposure therapy for phobias, for different anxiety disorders. So the idea behind virtual reality exposure therapy is basically map the what we know about exposure therapy, which is an intervention that aims to present those phobic stimuli to individuals, to patients, so they become 
at ease, they become habituated to the presence of that threatening stimuli, right? Mm -hmm. And what we're doing in virtual reality is that we map those threatening, fearful stimuli in virtual reality so we can present them in a controlled way, in a very gradual manner, controlled by the therapist in a very safe and secure environment, right? For example, we can present spiders. If you're afraid of spiders, for example, that's a typical type of simple phobia. So we could present spiders starting from a distance, then bringing spiders closer to you. We can increase the number of spiders. We can manipulate the environment in a way that it's actually impossible to do in real yeah. life. So virtual reality offers the opportunity to do exposure therapy, but actually it gives you the opportunity to do things that you would not be able mm -hmm. to do in real life or would be very difficult to do. Like for example, putting you in a plane and taking off several times, right? Something that would be very expensive. That's the one of the main applications of virtual reality and probably the one that's been used more nowadays. But then virtual reality can be used for different purposes. For example, we're using virtual reality for the management of stress, anxiety. We can deliver breathing techniques and mindfulness practices through virtual reality. We can provide education that will help participants or patients with chronic pain to help them manage the, all the stress that influences their chronic pain. We can teach uh, expectant moms how to manage their stress. We can give them uh, prenatal education through virtual reality. So there's a number of different uses for virtual reality that go beyond the traditional exposure therapy that most people know about. Mm -hmm. And talk to us about the specific research conducted by Limbics and behavior together. What is your main focus? So in terms of research areas, I think some of the projects that we're conducting right now that we started at Limbics, one of them involves the use of guided imagery in virtual reality for the treatment of chronic pain in patients with low back pain and complex regional pain syndrome. The other study that we're conducting together with the pediatric hospital in Rome and the Pambino Gesù Pediatric Hospital, that involves the use of virtual reality and in particular distraction techniques mm -hmm. delivered on virtual reality to improve the anxiety, stress and pain that pediatric patients undergo when during certain medical procedures. So we're using these virtual reality environments to help them, you know, during this stressful situation and anxiety. Situation. And the preliminary data is fantastic. So it's, it's great to see, especially in pediatric, you know, like it's heartbreaking to see a child sick. You know, it's heartbreaking to see anyone sick. But when you see a child and you see that, you know, actually something that, you know, is regarded as a game can actually help them, you know, reduce yeah. their anxiety and also their pain levels because they're distracted thanks to an intechnological intervention. In this case, a behavior that's uh, brilliant. The medical application that you've just described is really amazing. And by the way, I'm really interested in, you know, how far are we from a moment when we have much wider implementations of VR products in, in mental health, digital health, and generally speaking in healthcare? What are your thoughts on that? And where will we observe the fastest growing markets? I think, and here that ties up to the US-Europe conversation. This nicely ties up with each. I think you'll easily see that in the US. One, why? Because it's a stronger economy. And there's and the adoption and penetration of the use of technology is higher. And also the private healthcare system encourages innovation mm -hmm. to actually, you know, be there and to be more involved. You know, you know, the value-based healthcare systems are brilliant. 
Here in Europe, we're finding it more challenging because we're talking convincing the government. And, you know, data that I have from the DIGA in Germany, which is the digital therapeutics um, law that was recently passed, and Germany's doing a brilliant job by leading this space in the European Union. We're finding that there's 10 solutions, I believe, that have been fast-tracked, and they're not being prescribed. And why? Because doctors don't know about them. So what do we do? <laughs> you know, so, you've heard me say this before. You know, what do you do? I'm going to invite you, everyone that's listening to this podcast now, please tell your doctors these tools exist. Yeah, you're right. Because we're not big pharma companies. We can't afford, you know, massive, large marketing campaigns and pharma execs that would actually go to see these doctors and yeah. explain products. If we all do a conscious exercise of, of letting our environments and our communities know about them, this will just slowly, you know, spread through. So when will we see it in Europe? In the US, I think we're going to see a big extension and there's big interest by, you know, big companies like Facebook and Oculus. They're really interested in the intersection of healthcare and virtual reality. And we'll see, you know, we'll see that sooner than we actually expect. And I'm not going to give dates because I might, you know, <laughs> shoot myself on the foot. <laughs> but in Europe, it's going to take us longer because of our um, healthcare systems. And, you know, we need to work with our governments and it's a top-down approach. You know, it's a top-down approach that actually, how do you make it work? You work at a regional level with small samples, show the governments that that works, and then, you know, it's kind of a bidirectional effect. And now let me ask a bit of a controversial question. Who should pay for mental health care? I'm a big advocate of public health care. It doesn't have to be mental health care. You know, health care should be something accessible to everyone. In terms of the cost, it's not the actual cost of mental health care. It's all the comorbidities associated. Who should be paying for this? Our healthcare systems, and we should all be covered by them. Mm -hmm. But our healthcare systems, and, and you know, I'm now talking of my experience in Europe, should be more value based. They should be shifting to value based. You know, if we could get, say, you know, we're now based in Spain, the Spanish healthcare system, or one hospital, just to adopt our technology and understand the savings, and then reinvest those savings in R&D and embracing more technology, because that will just be like a trickling effect. So uh, who should be paying for this? Public healthcare systems. And we should all have access to public healthcare. And that's what we should all be working towards too. <laughs> and how to improve access to mental health services? What could we do as um, societies? And what could be done by health systems? Number one is education at grassroots levels. So educate our children from a very, very young age, being aware about, you know, emotions and the ups and downs and all the aspects. You know, I have a, an 18 month old niece and I was just showing Mark a small video of her and she's learning the emotions. So she's learning how to be angry and how to be happy. So not only teach them what the emotions are, but how to handle them. And mm -hmm. how to handle tough situations as well. It's And not to be superheroes, you know, it's okay to not be okay. And I think accepting that life isn't, you know, just a field of beautiful roses. It comes with all of its ups and downs and a huge palette of colors. And it's not always, you know, shining sun, you know, you need storms to actually appreciate the sun. So I think it comes from a, you know, grassroots levels to start with. And then Having flexible healthcare systems, I think that's what you're touching on on that question, is having flexible healthcare systems with telehealth services. You know, there's fantastic work being done with chatbots for mental health care, as you well know. Yeah. 
So starting to use these small tools and always from a community level. So one of those tools is VoxSIO, so VoxTio from Edinburgh that I mentioned to you, and that is led by Michael McTurnan, who is an expert in AI. And they're doing fantastic work in Scotland with teenagers working with schools and the national NHS, so National Health Service. Yeah, fully agree. AI-driven systems are the future. And once talking about the future, Mark, what is the plan for future trials conducted by Limbics and Behav VR? What are you working on right now? We're starting to conduct uh, several clinical trials in different groups of domains. One of them is the stress management. Uh, we have developed a mindfulness-based intervention in virtual reality that basically replicates or mimics mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And one of the things that we're planning to do in the next few months is to start several research lines using centered VR with nurses and primary care physicians who nowadays uh, well, that have been through a really rough time because of the COVID pandemic. The idea is to test whether the use of mindfulness-based interventions delivered on virtual reality can help them take a more, they can increase their mindfulness traits and they can help them reduce their stress levels and levels of burnout that might be heightened because of the pandemic and all the stress they've been facing in the last year. Another one is the use of virtual reality to train mindfulness, breathing exercises, stress resilience strategies in moms during their third trimester, but also after birth. That's the reason we developed Nurture VR, which is a third trimester and fourth trimester intervention for moms aimed, as I said, to educate and provide them with coping strategies, helping them to manage stress and also perinatal mood and anxiety disorders that are very, very frequent, very often. Mm -hmm. Another area would be pain management. And this is a serious problem, especially in the US. We're trying to overcome that pandemic caused by the overuse of opioids that are nowadays being used to treat uh, chronic pain. So what we're trying to do is to create and solutions that by teaching pain management skills can actually reduce the use of opioids in okay. different populations. People that have been through uh, major surgery, for example, a total knee surgery, or people who have been dealing with uh, chronic low back pain for many years. And actually, these are interventions that we're starting to implement in physical therapy clinics and that we're trying also to bring into their homes, not only to implement those solutions in the clinic, but also at home. And my last and probably the hardest question for today is how to reduce stigma connected with mental health. Number one, again, it's down to education and down to grassroots levels and down to our environments. So if you're feeling unwell, you know, it's okay to not be okay and to say so. Mm -hmm. You know, I suffered from adolescent depression and I suffered from depression when I was a teenager and I was medicated. And 20 years later, there are solutions that can fix depression with no medication. And I think if I were a parent, I would rather my child be treated with their condition with an intervention that doesn't have chemical, you know, secondary effects yeah, you're right. than to be with that. So I think number one is talking about it. You know, even when my business partner died, I, it broke me. And it's okay to say so. We are also have, you know, it's just talking about it is, is the number one thing. And educating. So I think it's down to, I wasn't, I was educated to be a super girl and a superwoman. I am not, you know, no one is. So remove your capes because, um, you know, it's like, or remove the S, you know, it's the t-shirt. It's just like, you know, it's okay to not be okay. Uh, it's okay that, you know, if today you're not being productive, just go home, take a long walk. 
you know, have you had bad news? Digest it, you know, because otherwise we just kind of block things out. And mm-hmm. I think that's the number one thing. And I think if we all start doing that at a broader level, so, you know, it's taken me a few years to realize that the position I'm in can actually help others. So now I'm not shy about it. For many years, this was something I wouldn't talk about. And now it's like, no, I'm actually going to tell everyone about it. And then you have people that come to you and say, wow, this has happened to me too. And if we start, you know, amplifying the message, governments will also get it. And that will imply changes in our education systems and changes in our healthcare systems. But I don't think there is a big formula to reduce stigma. I think it's at grassroots levels and it's within our communities. And I think communities really, really matter. Carmen and Mark, thank you for joining today and spending time with me and DigiSection listeners. And well, I hope to visit Barcelona in the coming months. We hope to be able to host you in Barcelona whenever the opportunity arises. But yes, please do visit. Thank you for having us. 